0: Welcome to the community supported Best of the Left podcast with clips today from To The Point, Mother Jones Radio, Now with David Broncaccio, The Rachel Maddow Show, Ring of Fire, The Young Turks, and Catalog of Ships. What the hell is Catalog of Ships?
1: Are America's elections free and fair? Again, I'm Roman Alney, and this is To the Point from Public Radio International, a daily look at the issues Americans care about most. In America, the right to vote is supposedly sacred, but conflicting laws and shady practices cast doubt on the fairness and accuracy of many elections. Electronic voting machines are the latest cause for concern about technological snafus, ill-trained poll workers, and opportunities for partisan manipulation. Using computer software, Texas Republicans and California Democrats have drawn district boundaries that virtually guarantee Who gets elected to Congress? On to the point, six years after the famous debacle in Florida, what's happened to election reform? The right to vote in free elections is basic to America's constitutional democracy. After the vote count debacle in Florida, which decided the year 2000 presidential election, Congress passed the Help America Vote Act, or HAVA. But there still is no national system to make sure that federal elections are free and fair. Instead, it's up to states and counties and cities to enforce what Mother Jones magazine calls a dizzying melange of inconsistently enforced laws, conflicting court rulings, local traditions, various technology choices, and partisan trickery. A lot of things to talk about. Robert Pastor is director of the Center for Democracy and Election Management at American University. It organized the Commission on Federal Election Reform, co-chaired by President Jimmy Carter and former Secretary of State James Baker, Democrat and Republican. Bob Pastor, good to have you on our program.
2: It's good to be on, Warren.
1: Uh, You recommended, your commission recommended, 87 different kinds of reforms that ought to be taken. How's it going?
2: Uh, It's going extremely slowly. Uh, Unfortunately, one has to rely on elected officials who think that the system is just fine, since obviously they succeeded in getting elected.
1: Uh, So what uh, what are some of the things that uh, ought to be done uh, first that haven't been done yet?
2: Well, I think the most important set of recommendations get to the heart of the administration of elections. Um, uh, Your previous comment about how decentralized the system is, It's decentralized to the point of being dysfunctional. Uh, We don't have one election for president. We do not even have 50 elections for president, which is perhaps the way the founding fathers had conceived of it, that is to be run by the state. We actually have 13,000 separate elections, each one by counties and municipalities, uh, that design the ballot, that train their own poll workers, that buy the technology and the equipment. So there's no uniformity. And uh, since 2002, with the Help America Vote Act, uh, we have shoveled the roughly $3 billion worth of equipment at them, and they are having a hard time adjust to it. So I think the place I would start with is how you administer elections so that they are a nonpartisan, and not bipartisan, but nonpartisan, professional, uh, autonomous. Um, this is the way our elections ought to be run, but they're not being run like that right now. And unfortunately, this is the way it's being done in much of the world. We just haven't caught up.
1: What is it, Derek, or, or can you give examples of uh, problems that have occurred in uh, recent uh, elections that uh, that, that uh, bolster your case about dysfunctionality?
2: Well, in the election for the primaries just last week in in Maryland, um, they they moved to electronic machines, and they didn't have voter access c- cards that went out to the precincts. So there were 238 precincts that couldn't get their elections moving. There were long lines. People were very discouraged. They started writing and, and paper. Uh, they're still counting the ballots today. Um, the the, uh, when the state began evaluating what went wrong, the county officials said the problem was the state officials. The state officials said, no, it was the county. Uh, everybody else said everybody's incompetent. Uh, and the governor now says, throw away those uh, uh, $135 million worth of machines and let's just use paper. So that's one example. There are many others. Of course, you, everybody knows about what happened in Florida under Catherine Harris and, and in Ohio more recently uh, with the Secretary of State, uh, who was perceived as very partisan. Whenever you have an elected official running the elections and there's a close election, uh, it's reasonably predictable uh, that the if the the losing party, if it represents the other party, is going to accuse the 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 governing official uh, of being partisan. Uh, There's no reason why we need to do it like that, but that's the way it's still being done. Mm
3: Out with another poll. In this case, from Zogby, their new poll shows that more than sixty percent of the voting public have heard news reports of flaws in electronic voting equipment. And in addition to that awareness, many of them are cautious. Ninety-two percent of respondents concurred that Americans have the right to view and obtain information about how elections officials count votes. And of course, the automated machines frequently don't allow for that. Well. There's more than one good reason for you to be suspicious of the voting systems in the United States. That's the bones of an article in the new Mother Jones magazine, Just Try Voting Here, that article written by Sasha Abramsky. Hi, Sasha. Welcome to the show.
4: Hi. Thanks for having me on.
3: Let's start with the true or false. Poll taxes are illegal in the United States, and there ain't no such thing. Partly true,
4: partly false. They are illegal in the United States. Unfortunately, what we're seeing in recent months and in the last couple of years is that an increasing number of state politicians are looking for a way around that. They're not recreating the poll taxes. What they're doing is they're creating voter ID requirements. And what that means is that to be able to go to vote, to be able to turn up at the polling place and have your ballot count, you have to show a government-issued photo ID. Now, for most middle-class Americans, that's an easy thing to do because most middle-class Americans drive and they have a state-issued driver's license. Unfortunately, there's a tremendous number of poor people, elderly people, and especially poor rural African-Americans who do not have state-issued driver's licenses. Mm -hmm. And in states like Georgia, Indiana, and Missouri, Rules are coming into effect which effectively say you cannot vote without producing photo ID. And to get that photo ID in many states, you have to pay 20 25 $30. So a backhand kind of poll tax is coming back even though the poll tax is illegal.
3: You have 11 different specific examples of things going wrong with voting systems across the country and two of those you file under incompetence and malevolence.
4: That's right. I mean, politics is never going to be perfect. And democracy is always going to be a game of approximations. We're going to try and make our system as flawless and as transparent and as open as possible. We'll probably never put, never succeed in making it 100% transparent or 100% fail-safe. But what's happening at the moment is we're not even trying anymore. We're not even trying to make our system transparent. Increasingly, what we're doing is We're introducing legislation that has the effect of removing people from the voter rolls or that has the effect of diminishing public confidence in the electoral system. For me, one of the fascinating things is the stampede towards electronic voting. Now, obviously, anyone who's studied the history of voting in this country knows that there were many, many problems with a paper ballot system. It was hard to count the votes. Paper ballots could be misplaced. But one good thing about the paper ballot system was it did allow for recounts. If there was doubt as to the accuracy of the outcome, you could just go back in and you could recount the votes. And then over the last five years or six years, we've moved away from paper ballots and we very, very quickly adopted a system of electronic voting Mm -hmm. where essentially we feed our votes into machines and there are different kinds of machines. Some of them are optical scanners. Some of them are machines which just notch up on the computer system each time a vote is cast for somebody. Now the problem with most of these systems is there is no automatic paper recount system available. So if the machine malfunctions or if the machine is hacked, or if the computer system has a virus in it, which has been designed to erase votes from one candidate or add votes to another candidate.
3: And then erase itself. And then so erase
4: itself so there's no record that the system has been tampered with. If that happens, at the moment, it's very, very hard to go back in and do an accurate fail-safe recount. And I think that's very problematic for a couple reasons. The first is the obvious reason, that it might result in people who didn't actually win elections being able to claim electoral victory. The second thing it does is it reduces dramatically the public confidence in the system. Now democracy works to the degree that people have faith in it. Mm -hmm. It works to the degree that people really feel they have a stake in the system. If you take that faith away, you've essentially created a game. Politics becomes nothing more than a game played by tacticians. And the outcome of that game is to do with tactics rather than to do necessarily with the will of the people. And I think one of the really scary things you're seeing with electronic voting is increasingly it's being so open to abuse that it's creating a culture of cynicism among the electorate. And that culture of cynicism is incompatible with the ideal of a democratic system.
3: Well, in fact, yeah, when you talk about the politicizing, we we talked earlier about the technical problems with the voting machines, but then you you allude to the politicizing of it. Let me just read this briefly from your article. When the election supervisor in Leon County, Florida, discovered that Diebold's machines could be tinkered with, the company responded by refusing to service or upgrade the machines as long as this election supervisor remained in charge. I mean, that is unforgivable.
4: Yeah, it's an extraordinary story. Um, Diebold is the system that provides electronic voting machines to a tremendous number of counties around America. And there have been allegations that it's partisan. Um, But regardless of whether or not it's a partisan company, it's a company that's deeply invested in the proprietorial secrets of its software. It doesn't like to share its software. It doesn't like to provide the codes that would allow for transparency, that would allow for elections officials to go in and double-check that the system's working properly. And a lot of computer technicians and security experts have issued some rather scathing reports in recent years saying the D Diebold machines are inherently flawed. And one of the election supervisors who looked at this data and got very, very concerned was the man in Leon County called Ian Sancho. Mm -hmm. And he hired experts, and the experts said, yes, this system is flawed, it's easily hackable, and it's hackable in a way that's going to be very hard to trace. In other words, you can alter an election, and as you were saying earlier, you can alter it in a way that's almost impossible to recreate. And Sancho said, look, I want the system to be fixed before I'm going to use the machines. And he got into a sort of war with this private company, and for a while there, until they had to back off, the private company, Diebold, was saying, well, we demand Santos' removal before we're going to go back in and deal with the county. Now, that's a rather incredible thing, for a private company to demand the removal of a publicly elected official before that company is going to safely administer the machinery that's now responsible for our democratic elections. So you're, in a sense, seeing, I guess, the privatization of the election system, but a privatization with none of the checks and balances that would be necessary to make it a successful system.
3: Sasha Abramsky, I want to wrap this up with the beginning of your article. As you note in the beginning of your article, except for a rudimentary federal framework, which determines voting age and channels money to states and counties, etc., U.S. elections are shaped by a melange of inconsistently enforced laws, etc. Is there in that sentence the implication that the answer is a standardization of voting systems, of voting requirements, of voting identification?
4: I think in an ideal world, yes, that one of the fundamental ways in which a country or a polity is defined is by its citizens' access to the political process. Now, most countries don't have the federal history that America has. So most countries today, when they're enforcing democracy, the assumption is that there'll be uniform rules for the way that democracy works throughout the entire country. Now, obviously, because of America's history, the situation here is somewhat different. Historically, states have tremendous discretion on a whole array of issues. The default assumption is that on most issues, it's the state legislatures rather than the federal legislators who are gonna set the standard. So my answer to your question is, in an ideal world, yes, America should have a uniform voting system. If you live in California, if you live in Texas, if you live in Louisiana or Florida, wherever you live, there should be the same criteria for eligibility to vote. In practice, that's not going to happen. It would, it would go counter to too much of American history and too much of American ideology about federalism.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: In practice, therefore, the best we can hope for is to put pressure on states like Florida, to put pressure on their congressional representatives to have letter-writing campaigns and so on, in order to try and get the state politicians in very restrictive states like Florida to open up their voting process, to make it more transparent and fairer. So I don't think there are any easy solutions to this, but I do think that there should be a move towards as many national standards as possible, even if those national standards end up being administered at the state level.
3: Sasha Abronsky, thank you so much, and, and best of luck to that little voter-to-be I hear in the background there.
4: <laughs> thank you very much. I close my eyes
5: when it gets too sad. I think thoughts that I know are bad. Close my eyes and I count to ten. Hope it's over when I open them. I want the things that I had before. Like a Star Wars poster on my bedroom door. I wish I could count to ten. Make everything be okay. So mad, I hear them scream, I hear them fight. They say bad words and make me wanna cry. Close my eyes when I go to bed and I dream adventures who make me smile. I feel better when I hear them say, Everything will be wonderful, some.
6: I've spotted some things that need some airing, and so has Angus King. Angus is a regular here on Now. He's also the former governor of Maine and one of those independents that they like to grow up there, neither Republican nor Democrat. Angus, good to see you. Good to see you, David, as always. The big political headline of the week has to be CBS New York Times, poll showed that only 25 percent of people polled approve of the job that Congress is doing. One of the lowest in
7: 10, 15 years.
6: So, I mean, a lot of people take that and conclude the obvious, that, okay, it is a watershed moment in American history. Approval hasn't been this low since 1994 when Congress changed hands spectacularly That's going to happen again.
7: I don't think so. There are a couple of reasons. One is that Congress is pretty thoroughly gerrymandered. Uh, It used to be that you had a lot more competitive seats. Over the past 10 years or so, the science of gerrymandering, battling computer programs as to allocating people among districts. You've seen this in action. Oh, yeah, I've seen it. I've seen it in Maine. You've got some very sharp lawyers who practically do nothing else. They have the computer programs. They figure out where everybody's living. They draw the lines. And the net result is that even in this year, where you have enormous uh, uh, unrest and dissatisfaction, and everybody's talking about political year, possible change of congressional power, probably around 10%, 10% of the House seats nationwide are competitive. You know, one way you can tell that is where are the parties putting the money? And they're putting the money into literally 10, maybe 11 percent of the seats. So there's really a kind of lock, which is a little bit disturbing. Second point is that uh, this uh, this phenomenon of people expressing dissatisfaction with Congress, people never like Congress, but they always like their congressman. That's a very common observation. And us. that
6: suggests to you that... Uh these predictions of a wholesale change in Congress in a few weeks, maybe a little bit overdone?
7: I think it's, I think it's unlikely. It, it could happen. I'm not saying it couldn't. It's unlikely. But there's another piece of this polling that's really interesting that's unique, as far as I know, in, in polling history. Over the past 20, 30, 40 years, as one party goes down, the other party goes up. It's kind of a hydraulic effect. This year, the Republicans are going down, but the Democrats aren't going up very interesting phenomenon. You got any theory here? Well, I think people are pretty much fed up with the whole deal uh, is, the,
6: is the bottom line. But what happens if you've gerrymandered a district so sharply
7: and so effectively that the competition is gone? What's the cost? Well, the cost is that it undermines the whole idea of, of, of our democracy. The house is supposed to be the people's house and it reflects the will of the people but it's set up in such a way, it's wired in such a way that it, 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 it won't do that. So you can have significant changes in public opinion, significant changes in views on issues, but by and large, it's not going to reflect itself in the House, or at least it won't in the short term. And that's really a, a kind of undermining of, of one of the principles of our system. Now, do you add to that partisan rancor,
6: you know, the passionate people on each side that love to throw mud at the opposite side and not get together to solve issues. And you can have a real alienation from the well, political process.
7: Here's a story, and I, it may be apocryphal, but I've heard it so many times recently that I, th- I think it's true. Historically, the, the House of Representatives has had a softball game, Republicans versus Democrats. This year, they couldn't agree on the rules to have the softball game. (laughs) When they can't play softball and they can't work together in any kind of collegial way, we're in real trouble when it comes to solving problems. Alright, so how do we solve it? Well, I'm involved in, in, I mean, (laughs) you asked and I gotta disclose, uh, there's a group that's been generated just in the last few months called Unity08 and the whole idea is very straightforward. We want to have an online convention, a national convention, if you will, open to any American voter to choose a unity ticket for president and vice president in 2008. That is a Republican and a Democrat or a Democrat and a Republican. And the idea is to try to cut through this morass of partisanship and polarization.
6: So not some sort of goofy online experiment. You could actually take the ticket generated in this online forum by this online convention and vote on election day? In that's, the,
7: that's the whole idea. We're working now on ballot access. That's why we're starting two years early because, it's gonna, as you can imagine, the rules of getting on the ballot aren't simple. And We're working with lawyers in Washington and all that kind of thing to figure out how we get on the ballot in all 50 states. This is not a, a fantasy. This is a, this is a, a direct effort to, uh, to elect a president and a vice president and try to move the country back toward the center. And to help electronically engineer some bipartisanship. That's exactly right. And because now, if you think about it, we, the rest of us stand around and wait for the people of Iowa and, and New Hampshire, no disrespect, tell us who we get to vote for in November. Why not let everybody make that choice? All right.
6: Angus King, former governor of Maine, thank you. Always a pleasure.
5: Stories making headlines around the country and around the world this morning. But every day here on the Rachel Maddow Show, we do enjoy poking a sharp stick at the soft white underbelly of the right-wing scheme machine, giving you a little peek at their political playbook. Uh, today's right-wing political tactic is making it hard for people to vote. Uh, narrowing the franchise. This, and this is kind of the big one for me for right-wing underbelly political tactics. And I'm thinking about it because, uh, it's primary season right now because we've got big, very important midterm elections coming up in November because we've had, uh, we've had at least two disastrous national elections, uh, in, in 2000 and in 2004 in terms of, uh, the quality of the structure of our democracy and people being able to, uh, smoothly and easily register to vote and vote and make sure that That their vote got counted. It's this effort by the Republican Party to to change the structures of democracy in a way that benefits them. This, to me, is the underbelly tactic that's kind of driving me the most nuts. The Republican Party has always felt that the smaller the number of people who vote, the better off they'll be. The lower the voter turnout, the smaller the number of registered voters, the more difficult the process of voting can be made the better off Republican causes will be. They see more voters as equaling more Democratic votes. So to the extent that they can suppress votes, suppress Democratic votes specifically when they can, but generally to keep voter numbers low, they feel like that benefits them. Why that's true is a story for another day. I mean, it's a story, the plot of which is basically that Democratic interests tend to be populist and Republic interests, Republican interests tend to be elitist. Uh, that's the basic plot, but that story is for another day the question for today uh, is how republicans keep people from voting because it's kind of hard political case to make, although I think they're increasingly starting to figure out a way to do it in a way that they think doesn't sound too un-American and offensive. Uh, th- because it's hard to just say we want fewer people to vote. Some conservatives will admit that and just say, you know, anybody who's not educated enough or who doesn't know the issues enough or who can't be bothered to spend the time necessary to vote, I don't really want a lot of people voting. I'd rather just have the good people vote. I mean, occasionally you will hear people say that, but uh, generally they don't make an argument for it. They just make it hard to vote. The way they get away with policies to make voting harder, to make registering more difficult, to overall reduce the number of people voting, to achieve that, one of the main things they have done, particularly in the past couple of years, is to claim voter fraud, to make a lot of noise about this huge threat of voter fraud in the country. Now, uh, today, as we've been talking about all morning, today is the day that we have learned that uh, soon-to-be-indicted Ohio Republican Congressman Bob Nay, uh will no longer be running for re this fall. Uh, on this illustrious day, when we learn that Bob Nay is slinking out of politics, even before getting indicted, uh, I'm pleased to break down how Bob Nay himself has used this spurious allegation of voter fraud... Uh, to try to make it harder for people to vote and to, to, to result in, to, to create policies where fewer people end up voting, uh, in the critically important state of Ohio. In 2004, of course, the Ohio elections were a disaster. Bobby Kennedy Jr., uh, from Air America Radio here has documented to great effect the systematic efforts to keep, uh, Ohio residents from voting in 2004, particularly if they were the wrong kind of Ohio resident, the might that, the, the kind that might vote Democratic, God forbid. Um, and and this year, two years later, the guy in charge of Ohio elections, Kenneth Blackwell, the secretary of state, is running for governor and also supervising the elections again, which is enough to put a shiver down your spine. And they are up to their old tricks and, and trying to make it even more difficult to register people uh, than it was the last time around. And you can expect that on Election Day in November, they will make it more difficult for people to vote than they did even back in 2004. After the 2004 elections. Old Bob Ney uh, put out a report on the 2004 elections. Uh, he uh, he compiled his own personal Bob Ney report on what happened in 2004. And in his report, which he put out the following year, put it out in 2005, Bob Ney said that there were thousands, thousands, he said, thousands of cases of voter registration fraud being investigated in Ohio. His citation for this was, you know, media reports, thousands. Thousands of cases of voter fraud, which is is meant to signify that there has to be a crackdown on the integrity of voter registration. We need to start demanding ID from people. We need to frisk people and and, and shake them down and make sure that they are who they say there's going to be, who they say they are, because there's a concerted effort by the Democrats to steal the election through voter fraud. That's the implication here, right? Well, the League of Women Voters, nonpartisan organization, followed up on that thousands of voter fraud investigations allegation, and they found that in total, in two elections in Ohio in two thousand and two and two thousand and four, with over nine million votes cast, there were found to be four fraudulent ballots. Nine million votes cast Four fraudulent ballots but the fear of voter fraud the allegation of voter fraud is enough to justify making it so difficult for every Ohio resident to cast their ballot that the Republican Party knows that it'll twist their way
8: Kerry finally fell off that damn turnip truck he's been riding around on for the past two years. It's as if he landed on his head and miraculously, he can now see just how bad GOP corruption in Ohio in the 2000 election cycle really was. Kerry sent an email to Democrat donors last week laying out the obvious, which is that Secretary of State Ken Blackwell is a political thug who should be spending his days in prison rather than running for governor of Ohio. Ohio has replaced even Florida as a state that's become emblematic of the Republican political crime America has been suffering through during its election cycles since they let their evil little troll Karl Rove out of his box. Here are a few of the Rovian moves the grand old party unleashed in the 2004 national elections. First, Democrat voters received official government looking flyers where they were told that due to crowded polling sites, Republicans would vote on Tuesday and Democrats would vote on Wednesday. Yes, you'd have to be a tad unsophisticated to buy into a scam like that, but it's always been part of the mindset of the GOP elitist conservative that all parts of the American population except them are made up of naive, ignorant masses, so hell, it was worth a try. In addition to that, GOP election thugs were also able to report to their malevolent master that they had successfully jammed phone lines of potential Democrat voters who were trying to get polling information about where they should vote. It was the grand old party's way of stopping Democrat get out and vote efforts. And of course, one of the more common Republican poll worker scams was to tell potential voters that if they had outstanding traffic violations or if they owed any back child support that they couldn't vote and the grand old party operatives simply escorted those people out of line. Intimidation was the key element to all the moves made by the GOP in stifling Democratic voter turnout. They particularly liked challenging college students who were registered absentee voters. For example, thousands of students who attended Ohio State University received letters leading them to believe that they could not qualify as absentee voters even though the law was very clear that they did qualify. Also, one way the GOP has learned to run unfriendly voters away from the polls in the inner city is to make voting machines scarce and jam up voter lines to the point where working voters with limited time in a day are forced to stand in line for hours. Because GOP insiders knew that the typical voter would not spend more than 45 minutes waiting for their chance to vote. But most importantly, the new GOP trend is to run their best, most promising candidates for the position of county supervisor of elections. Candidates that were the GOP darlings that used to run for state offices such as the Senate or state offices in the House are now being pushed for position of county election supervisor. And there's a reason for that. Because when the GOP controls elections county by county, state by state. Well, you get the picture.
2: The Pap Attack on Air America Radio Network. Go to ringoffireradio.com or airamericaradio.com for more info.
5: show, thank God we do enjoy poking a sharp stick at the soft white underbelly of American politics, flipping over the day's news to show you the slimy, scheming political tactics at work underneath. Uh, today's underbelly tactic uh, is suppressing the vote, but it was a, a, a hard fought uh, battle between uh, the two tactics that I could have named today. It could have been suppressing the vote or it could have been creating a fake debate And I'll explain why both of those apply. Uh, This is something that is, uh, I think, sometimes we pick stuff in underbellies that is just kind of interesting from a political perspective. Like, oh, look, we've identified an interesting tactic. This is one of those underbelly tactics that's actually huge, like earth-shatteringly huge in terms of uh, American government and civics and protecting our democracy. This is heart and soul of democracy stuff. Here's what they're doing. Um, Did you see Al Gore's movie, An Inconvenient Truth? Lots of people saw it. Um, uh, The movie about global warming. One of the points I think was made really clear in *An Inconvenient Truth is that the oil industry, uh, the energy companies, they made the issue of global warming and climate change uh, into a fake debate. They muddied the waters. They said, uh, you know, on the one side is basically all of science and all of common wisdom, uh, saying that global warming is real and the climate is changing and the impact on the environment is noticeable and worrying. On the other side is Exxon. Exxon uh, funding to the teeth a tiny little contrary effort to complicate the issue, to undermine the consensus, to make it seem like there's a question on which there isn't actually agreement, to make it seem like an issue that on which there's a, there's a legitimate debate. And it's a lie. Exxon spent a lot of money funding that side of the global warming, quote, debate, to make it seem like there was a debate when there is no real debate. They created a fake opposition for the commonwealth system. There's one clear thing going on. They would prefer to not be held accountable for it. So they decided to muddy the waters so that that clear thing doesn't seem so clear anymore. That is also what's going on with voting. Democrats are concerned, right? Democrats are concerned. Independents are concerned. Democracy watchers are concerned that, that we have a banana republic election system in the United States of America, that the system is not secure, that voting machines can be hacked. That partisan election officials are, are purging voter rolls and, and coming up with unfair voter registration restrictions and, and, and making the Democrat, Democratic districts have, have very long lines to vote and, and otherwise trying to narrow the number of people who vote, particularly people who are likely to vote Democratic. And that's why we keep having ridiculously screwed up elections. I mean, nobody denies that we have screwed up elections, but Democrats and independents and people who are worried about the health of our democracy see something at work there that needs to be fixed. Whether or not you think it's a conspiracy or whether you think it's incompetence is a problem that needs to be fixed. Democrats are worried that there's a reason why the White House and this Congress don't have an interest in fixing these elections. This is the Democratic complaint, right? The Republicans have tried to make it seem like there is a debate about voting problems. Not that there's, you know, there's an obvious problem with our elections and that someone should be held accountable for it and we should fix it. No, they want to actually make it seem like, okay, Democrats are complaining about the state of our elections, but Republicans have a beef about elections, too. Republicans' complaint, their equally valid complaint about American elections is that Democrats commit voter fraud, You've heard this, right? This allegation, seemingly out of nowhere, that we need to crack down on the threat of voter fraud, which is utter BS. They're saying that the way that Democrats try to steal elections is by having thousands, no, millions of dead people vote. Or or by having people go to the polls dressed up like other people. But having to literally impersonate other voters by, by busing in illegal immigrants to vote for Democratic candidates. It is utter BS. There is no evidence of people showing up at the polls to vote pretending to be other people. There is no evidence of lots of dead people voting all of a sudden. There is no evidence of non-citizens trying to vote en masse for John Gary or any other Democrat. It's not happening. The evidence isn't there. Just like Greenland is not getting icier and there's there's not a massive Democratic voter fraud campaign out there. Uh, and you know what? I'm probably the kind of commie pinko jerk who would know about it if it were. And you probably are too. Has anybody ever asked you to go dress up like someone else and go vote twice or three times? Ever? Has anybody ever put you up to that? Come on. But if? they can muddy the waters enough about voting. If they can make the concern about what happened in Florida in 2000, and Ohio in 2004, and in Maryland this month, with people in Tacoma Park, Maryland, voting by writing their votes in pencil on the back of scrap paper and just handing them over to poll workers. They're trying to muddy the concern about our screwed up election system by creating a false argument on the other side that, oh yeah, maybe we need to worry about the health of our democracy and voting and stuff, but you know, we also gotta worry about massive voter fraud. You know why they're doing this? Because the measures they can force through to address this mythical voter fraud pro- problem suppress the vote. So this muddies the waters enough so that they don't actually have to fix the elections, which does lend some credence to those of us who think that maybe some of this stuff is on purpose and not just incompetence. And the other thing it does is it allows them to sup- further to further suppress Likely Democratic voters. The House of Representatives yesterday voted on party lines to require everybody in this country to have a passport or a driver's license or another photo ID that contains proof of your citizenship in order to vote. It's a way to shave the number of poor people and minorities and the disabled and the elderly, all the people who are least likely to have these forms of ID or to have the wherewithal to get them in time to vote. It's a way to shave their numbers. And when you shave the numbers of those types of voters, you shave Democratic votes. It is unconstitutional. It is anti-Democratic. It is partisan manipulation of our Democratic institutions at its most base. But that has never stopped them before.
8: to make my dream real I tell him you do you're of sight, so feet by floor from look out baby cause
4: here I come I'm bringing you a love that's true so get ready get ready I'm gonna try to
8: make you love me too so with love let me remind mess in the time it takes to find
9: now if you want to hear fun you want to hear Republican commercials now th- there's does this
10: one involved polka dancing
9: no this one does not Santorum's polka dancing ad was awesome and we covered it on the website on the youngturks.com. Uh, for those of you who are uh, Air America listeners, we did that on our old Sirius show as well. Now, uh, no, this involves black Republicans. The first one, there's two of them. One involves uh, shooting Katrina victims. and uh, second, But the first one is about how Republicans love uh, black people. We love black people, right? Uh, that's what the, the ad is claiming. It's an ad actually put together by an independent group. That's the way they love to do it.
11: Yeah, Well, it's not, of course, an independent group couldn't be less dependent.
9: <laughs> it is actually the Washington-based National Black Republican Association, the NBRA. And they've run and they're running an awful ad in Maryland in order to help the Black Republican candidate. Yeah,
11: Ma- Michael Steele is the re- Lieutenant Governor of uh, Maryland. He spoke at the uh, he gave one of the the primetime addresses at the Republican National Convention. He gave one of the better speeches, I thought, at the Republican National Convention. I mean, that's, again, that's, you know, the competition was not fierce for that award. Um, But he, uh, uh, and he is in a race with a congressman named Ben Cardin for the Senate seat there in uh, in Maryland. And he's doing uh, uh, pretty well. I mean, anywhere from being ahead by a point to being down by seven. And he has really great ads that totally deny that he's a Republican. That's the irony of this group helping him. The ads are like, you know you're gonna see a lot of grainy ads that say things like, "I don't like puppies," <laughs> right mm-hmm. And then he's like, "Let me just say for the record. I love puppies, you know, and it's just very hey, things are different. We're gonna ban all lobbyist gifts." Different kind of... Oh,
9: sure you are, big guy. Oh, sure you are. Like the reform the Republicans just did, right? Where Bob Nay, who's now convicted and he's going to spend at least 27 months in jail, still gets to keep his pension. You're going to do that kind of reform? Yeah, tell me more about it, Mr. Republican
11: candidate. The ban on uh, uh, lobbyist travel until after November, right?
9: Oh, I love that. Guys, get a load of that. If you hadn't heard that before, Ben makes a great point there. One of the great in fact, the second biggest part of their ethics reform bill among the Republicans was no more travel that we're going to accept from lobbyists. Until November. Till after the election. Until after the elections. And then once we've hoodwinked the American people yet again, then of course we'll go back to taking the travel money from lobbyists. We're Republicans. <laughs> what these idiots keep re-electing us.
11: So anyway, though, but Michael Steele's ads are... They're good. And for mm-hmm. voters who don't know what what's – don't pay attention to politics on a regular basis, you could see this guy and think, hey, I like that guy. That guy's different. That guy's something – that guy might be special, and he doesn't seem like a Republican.
9: Yeah, it's a big, giant lie. He yeah. will do exactly everything that is – Hmm. uh, Let me just ask of him by the administration. Right. You're trying to spare me saying this very, very bad word. Right. Okay. Whatever his boss tells him to do, which is uh, President Bush. Believe me, if you elect Steele for at least two years, all he will say to President Bush is, yes, sir. Anything you like, sir. Anything you want, sir. How do I know that? Because that's what every single Republican has done in the Senate so far. And still crawled up Bush's ass in 2004 in that convention. Oh, yes, sir. How tightly can I snuggle up your buttocks, sir? (laughs) Get out and steal. Oh, I'm not a real Republican. Get the hell out of here. Now, of course, this ad we're going to play you, he denies. Oh, I, I had nothing to do with it. Oh, I don't, I don't even want it up there. No, 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 no. Unbeknownst to me, the National Black Republican Association happened to be running this ad. Now, get a load of this ad. Run that, JR. This is what they're hearing in Maryland.
12: Uh, Dr. King was a real man. You know he was a Republican. <laughs> Dr. King, a Republican? Democrats passed those black codes and Jim Crow laws. Democrats started the Ku Klux Klan. White hoops oh. and sheep Democrats fought all civil rights legislation from the 1860s to the 1960s. Democrats released those vicious dogs and fire hoses on blacks. Seriously? And the Dixiecrats remained Democrats and vowed to vote for a yellow dog before a Republican. Republicans freed us from slavery and put our right to vote in the Constitution. What? Republicans started the NAACP, Affirmative Action, and the HBCU. Sounds like Democrats have bamboozled Black. Democrats blocked the minimum wage passed by Republicans and over $200 billion have been spent on education, health care, and job training since President Bush took office. So Democrats want to keep us poor while voting only Democrats. Democrats. Democrats want us to accept same-sex marriages, teen abortions without a parent's consent, and suing the Boy Scouts for saying God in their pledge. See, we need to think and vote on our own values. Exactly. Democrats have talked the talk, but the Republicans have walked the walk. Girl, it's time for us to do do the the walk.
11: walk. (laughs) Can I ask you a question? Yes, Jill. In what year was the political party, the Ku Klux Klan, renamed the Democratic Party?
9: (laughs) Uh, For the record, of course, the Ku Klux Klan... Was not formed by the Democratic Party, but it also was not formed by the Republican Party. Yeah. It's independent <laughs> for whatever yeah, it's, it's, I it's, also a, believe it's a proud independent organization. I also
0: believe it wasn't a political party.
9: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Martin Luther King, of course, was not a Republican. He was not even close to a Republican. Again, he was nonpartisan. Do you think Martin Luther King voted
11: for Richard Nixon in 1960? You think Martin Luther King voted for Barry Goldwater in
0: 1964?
11: No, but you know what Martin Luther King wanted to do? Keep black people poor.
9: <laughs> yeah, he was part of the Democrats bamboozling uh, uh, de- yeah. the black people in America.
11: The uh, our senior researcher with the Atlanta-based uh, King Center uh, said Thursday that uh, Martin Luther King never endorsed a candidate from either party. He says, I think it's highly unlikely he was a Republican. It's inconceivable. It's funny how, what? You, go. What? It's funny how you go through life and you learn things about yourself as as, as you grow older. And there was always something that I, I, I struggled with. I, I, you know, there was something I knew that I hadn't really gotten in touch with myself about.
1: Mm-hmm.
11: I can say today, I'm a proud racist. <laughs> <I'll> <laughs> I'm you're a so
1: Democrat.
9: I'm <laughs> oh, because you're a Democrat.
11: I'm a proud racist right. what? Democrat.
9: You're, you're part of the effort to bamboozle the black people in America? I want to bamboozle
11: you black people. I want to keep you down. I want to keep you
9: poor. Right. Well, <laughs> look, it uh, <laughs> seems to fit a fat pattern then, apparently. You know the thing about
11: w- w- the the grain of truth, of course, and all that is that uh, most Southerners, for since the inception of the country or since the middle of the nineteenth century, were in fact Democrats and and, and in fact fought uh, the end of slavery and, and certainly fought the end of segregation. And it was the Democratic Party who it was faced with the sort of uh, the, the the test of wills that the Republican Party is shortly to be faced with between rational people and the insane people who are currently leading the party. And the Democrats had to choose. Do we stay this peculiar alliance of Northeast progressives and Southern racists? Uh, And, of course, what ended up happening is the Democratic Party abandoned the racist and strom Thurmond leading the way mm-hmm. all those guys left the democratic party and it was of course the democratic party which passed the uh and lyndon johnson who passed the civil rights act, the rights act. Yeah.
9: well Jesus. i can't believe we're having a serious discussion over this in case people didn't... terrible freaking commercial but uh i'll just say this for the record if you notice in the commercial the one part they didn't bother to lie about was from eight the Republican, the democrats were racist from 1860 to 1960 you're right about that, and from 1960 on, it's been the Republicans who are racist and who have voted against every civil rights legislation, who have, you know, and what has the Bush administration done for black people? Okay, Kanye West couldn't have been more right. What has he done? Name one goddamn thing. Name one thing. And, you know, Tony right. Snow, and hold on. in a, Tony Snow, in, in a press conference a, a couple of weeks ago, they asked him about poor people. He was just honest about it. He said, honestly, it's not a priority for us. He said, it's not a priority. We don't talk about it much in the White House. It's not a priority. Poor people. Who cares about poor people? From 1960 on, we've been crushing poor and black people here in the Republican Party. So it's not a big deal to us.
5: Are the Republicans are the racist ones now? <laughs> I got got to,
9: this. I got, to, and, I got to switch my party. You know what's racist, by the way? The commercial. I mean, did you listen to, what? You go, girl. I'd be surprised if those people were even black. Okay? I bet you they got an Asian and an Indian and a white girl to do that commercial. And they're like, all right, now you talk black, okay? Because we're the Republicans trying to protect black people, right?
11: There's a Republican talking point on uh, on race and on blacks voting for Democrats, which basically they vote 90% of the time, is that uh, Democrats sort of uh, want to keep them down uh, because that mm-hmm. will enable them to keep voting Democratic. I don't I don't understand that logic in any way, shape, or form. But it also suggests, hey, black people, you're too stupid to figure out that these people aren't on your side. Well, look, I, I, obviously, I'm, i got news for you. I'm not black. I'm one of the least black people in America. Thank you. Very proud of that. Um, uh, uh, people who have proud? been uh, – People who have had uh, people in power <laughs> – People who have had folks in power step on their throats uh, for the last 50 years – uh, they understand who's stepping on their throats. And this ad is insulting, demeaning, and condescending.
10: What can we say about Catalog of Ships?
0: If you would like to contribute story ideas or music to the show, please visit us at www.catalogofships.com.
10: Life catalog. Then remixed. Who says you know you have to live on the west coast once but not so long that you get soft on the east coast once but not so long that you get hard i I don't know i really was hoping that seattle was going to come through for me but i just couldn't make it stick and at the time i just really didn't know what it felt like to really want something i guess i just spent my whole life adapting to what Other people wanted, you know, teachers, parents, the church. And I just didn't really know what it felt like when I wanted something. My dating strategy was generally to find a girl who I knew liked me and then just kind of hang around her. Made things a lot easier if she did all the wanting for both of us. I had some money saved up. I was thinking maybe I would go to India, you know, to find myself. Because who knows? Maybe I was in India. I'd find myself there. But because of an accident I got into with a poster company, I uh, didn't have as, nearly as much money as I thought. I didn't want to go back to Chicago. I needed some distance from my parents. I thought maybe I would stay in San Francisco, but I just kept freaking out about the decision. And my friends in San Francisco just got really tired of hearing me whine and talk about how I didn't know what I wanted. And finally one of my friends said, look, we're just not going to put up with this anymore. Just go in the room, think about it for 20 minutes, whatever you're thinking at the end of 20 minutes... That's what you do. 20 minutes later, she came back in the room, and I had decided to buy a one-way plane ticket to New York City. Two days later, got stoned, walked around the redwoods, watched a movie, the poorly chosen Wekrium for a Dream, and then I caught the red eye. Landed in New York with not much more than the contents of my backpack and about $1,000 in the bank. Borrowed some money for a security deposit, answered an ad on Craigslist, which was new in New York at the time. Landed in an apartment on Montrose Avenue in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Just happened to be above my friend Michael Kraskin. A complete coincidence. The day of my impromptu move was also the day of the 2000 election. Also, a complete coincidence. Finding employment proved tougher than I had imagined. I foolishly assumed that employers would read summa cum laude on my resume and start handing me money. If any of them did take the time to read the italicized Latin on the resume, they were not in fact impressed in the least. What interviews I did get, I seemed to find a way to bungle with my absolute uncertainty. I was unable to pretend to be stable, so I guess they couldn't trust me, can't really blame them. During that time, we played a lot of poker. Mike, our friend Josh, and I. We made up a game called Florida Recount Poker. Sort of like Fall the Queen for you poker fans out there, except if a red king came up, that meant that the Republicans had won the election and the lowest hand would win, the world having gone to hell. If a black king came up, Democrats were now in office, Al Gore had saved the day, and the highest hand would once again be on top. If a player pulled a blackjack, well then, they were Ralph Nader, and everyone at the table had to give them a chip, matching funds. If a player pulled up a red jack, well that player was Pat Buchanan, and they had to give everyone a chip for being an asshole. I took a lot of comfort during the days of hanging chads, and knowing that my life was in complete limbo, so was the entire country's. I guess we all just couldn't figure out what we wanted. On the day, the exact day, if I'm not mistaken, that the Supreme Court decided that George W. Bush would be our next president, I got a phone call from a temp agency telling me they had a job for me, working for Pfizer. A job I held off and on for the next three years until I'd spent enough time in New York City to become hard, until I had enough days Walking down the street, passing thousands and thousands of people, giving me stares, saying, Who the fuck are you? What the fuck do you want? And after enough of those stares, I learned how to fake it. I learned how to fake what I wanted until it stuck.
0: The text for Catalog of Ships was written, performed, and recorded by David Terry in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Music, editing, and other production considerations were provided by Michael Kraskin in New York City. If you have ever invented your own poker game, please let us know the rules by writing us at ships at gmail.com or posting them on our blog at www.catalogofships.com. I intended to spend the next two minutes singing the praises of Catalogue of Ships and encouraging you to subscribe to their podcast, Instead, however, I have a correction to attend to. In the summer of 1997, a newspaper columnist for the Chicago Tribune, Mary Schmidt, wrote an article full of advice intended for the graduating class of that year. In this dawning age of the mainstream internet, this article fell victim to the online hoax of the year. The claim was made that the article was in fact the commencement speech given by one Kurt Vonnegut at MIT. After the article had spread across the globe by way of email boxes under a false heading, the prose of this article was, in turn, used by a producer to create a spoken word musical rendition of the message of advice for the youth of the day. The song was an overnight success and spread quickly to nearly every radio station in the country. The mystery of the original author of the article, including one particular line, Live in New York City once, but leave before it makes you hard. Live in Northern California
11: once, but leave before it makes you soft.
0: Was eventually cleared up, although not everyone got the message. Catalog of Ships titled Florida Recount Poker, it became my sad duty to inform David Terry of the hoax to which he had fallen victim nearly 10 years ago, and to send my condolences for the decade wasted and lost to the sands of time, never to be relived with the true knowledge of the origin of the sunscreen song. If you wish to send your condolences, you may contact him through their website at catalogofships.com. Or you may simply get caught up on the rest of David's life by listening to all 50 episodes of their outstanding podcast and many more to come, I hope.
11: Ladies and gentlemen of the class of 97, wear sunscreen. If I could offer you only one tip for the future, sunscreen would be it.